Welcome to Smart Welsh People, Croesio i Pobolga Cliog Cymru. I'm Dean Bennett, I'm the host of this, uh, this is my podcast, so I get to, I get the honour of introducing it and doing the outro every week. It's been a little while since I recorded one of these, it's been about 10 days before I recorded the intro to the last episode, but in that time, in the interval between now and then, uh, the, the world's gone into quarantine, uh, which was surprising. So everyone's stuck indoors now and it feels like a very different world all of a sudden, which you know, is interesting, we'll see how that pans out. One of the consequences, a very, very minor one, of this uh, coronavirus outbreak is that this isn't the episode I planned to put out uh, this particular week, uh, largely because uh, the guest's name is Matt, and last week's guest was also called Matt, and I worried about becoming one of those, you know, those stats you see, like the you know, Fortune 500 companies have more CEOs called John than they do uh, women CEOs. Uh, that's not the case here, this is just a sheer coincidence, just I happen to know a lot of Matt's who are willing to do the podcast. Uh, the reason I picked this one is because it's uh, suddenly, uh, unexpectedly, very topical. The guest today is Dr. Matt Morgan, uh, an intensive care doctor, uh, author of the book Critical. He's currently uh, essentially on the front line of the coronavirus battle. He's an intensive care doctor, a consultant level. So he's putting his life at risk all day, every day, working on the clock to treat this condition, which is currently scouring the planet. And like I say, he's a Welshman, so when Radio 4 eventually do do a drama about the coronavirus battle, uh, I don't want to hear any of this any accent but Welsh bollocks. It's on the record now. Our medics are fighting this as much as anyone else. It's a callback to something said in episode one, so I'll have to go back and check that. It's an interesting one, this. I found it really quite telling. Uh, for, for my own sake, of course, it's really quite interesting to speak to an intensive care doctor, someone who genuinely makes life and death decisions all day, every day as part of their daily life. Uh, I've actually spoken to him before for a book research I'm doing about you know, the emotional toll of a job like this and how you deal with it, how people cope, what are the consequences, what are the effects, and so on. Uh, so I know Matt quite well, and he um, he comes to me for advice sometimes, which is terrifying when you consider what he does for a living, what I do. I find that really upsetting, so if you feel the same, honestly, I don't mind. I wholeheartedly agree. Um, one thing, oh, he's a very nice guy, Matt, but he's... A very sincere bloke. You know, he means what he says, and he speaks with compassion and honesty. And for someone like myself, uh, who is far more willing to default to being flippant and droll, it's it's just a bit unsettling sometimes. I think you might be able to tell that from the discussion. I do seem a little bit, <laughs> I, you know, um, trying to diffuse not, not even tension, just uh, the sincerity, the the gravity of what's being said. But I shouldn't do that. I didn't want to do that. Maybe it's a masculine insecurity thing. I don't know, but it's intriguing for me to hear this, and I apologise in advance uh, for that. Also, apologies for the sound quality at times. Uh, Matt's quite a softly spoken man, as which probably is quite helpful when you work in the intensive care department. But this was recorded in my garden office, in my little cabin outside, and my neighbours had that day decided to excavate their patio looking for a pagan burial ground or something. They were making a lot of noise with labour back when you could do such things all those days ago. Made a noise anyway, and I'm sorry about that. It's there throughout. So, um, if you're interested in how you know the um, the intensive care people work, uh, Dr. Matt Morgan, my guest, was on Channel Four recently speaking about uh, the efforts being made in the University Hospital Wales, uh, you know, to tackle the imminent uh, coronavirus crisis, the surge in patients needing intensive care. Then you know, I'd advise you look that out. I'll put a link on the website for this uh, on the Cosmic Shambles page. But anyway. Quite topically, unfortunately, here's my exchange with medic, author, literal lifesaver and genuine hero at the moment, Dr. Matt Morgan. Enjoy, please. There's a hole in my heart, an area 
Okay, uh, another episode of Smart Welsh People. I'm here today in my own uh, cabin shed type construct with uh, Dr. Matthew Morgan, or is it Matt Morgan? You can call me Matt. Yeah, Matt's great, actually. Okay, Matt's yeah. good, yes. Uh, you're the second Matt I've uh, interviewed, uh, but a very different one. So, uh, I'd like to start this by uh, checking Welsh credentials. Uh, Matthew Morgan, quite, quite a Welsh-sounding name already. Good yep, start. Morgan, yeah, yeah, top name. Born in Wales? I'm, I was born in Neath, in a small village on the outskirts of Neath called Brincoch, mm-hmm. which has also got a CH in it, so there's another <laughs> Welsh credential, hopefully. Yeah, cool. Um, still living in Wales, obviously? Or, still living in yeah. Wales. I've, I've lived here all my life, other than mm. a year spent in Australia, uh, okay. in Western cool. Australia. Okay, we'll that, yeah. Uh, parents Welsh? Parents are both Welsh, both yeah. from Neath, yeah. How about grandparents? Uh, grandparents also, both oh. Welsh, from Putalbet, actually. Oh, all yeah. of them? Both sides? Uh, both sides, one from Margam in Putalbet, oh, oh, one from uh, <laughs> uh, one from the less posh area, from uh, Abraven. Okay. Are you a Welsh speaker at all? Or? I'm not a Welsh speaker, no, no. Right. no. Uh, my, my wife is. Oh, cool. um, some people in my family are, but yes, yeah, sadly, I, I'm not. Oh, well. it's, it's fine, because I don't speak it anyway, so if you could speak it, I wouldn't ask you to, because I have, well, you could do it, and I would have no idea what's going on. So, basically, um, you're a doctor. Some people might call it a proper doctor. Uh, I'm a doctor myself, but uh, not a proper one, even though I've got the PhD. But you actually stop people dying, which I think... I'll give you that one. Uh, occasionally, <laughs> stopping is, is <laughs> aim one. <laughs> that's, that's, <laughs> yeah. that's the goal, yeah. I mean, so, um, you're a critical care doctor, essentially. Yeah, so I work in the intensive care unit, which is a place where people go when they're critically ill. Mm. And I guess our job is threefold. A, work out what's wrong with them. B, try and fix what's wrong with them. And C, when we can't do that, be there to care for them and their family if if, if death is uh, the outcome, really. Well, obviously, yeah. That's, um, again, you can't, you can't avoid that, can you, in you know, this line of work? So, so um, you've written a book about this, Critical. Uh, so what uh, what was the intention behind that book, is, is, is basically what I'm um, asking. The, the, the intention, where it came from, genuinely, was uh, a conference in Dublin, I'd I'd been to a medical conference. I spoke there and spoke about infection and sepsis, and people said, "Oh, you know, nice talk. We enjoyed it." And that night, it, the story started with a with a Guinness, which all good stories start Indeed, with and end with sometimes, mm. uh, in a local bar. And somebody said, "Why are you here in Dublin? Why are you in in our city?" Mm. I said, "I'm I'm, I'm a doctor. F- I've come to a conference. What do you do?" I said, "I, I do intensive care." And they said, "What's that?" Mm. And it really struck me at that point. I'd spent a decade writing dry academic papers that actually hardly anyone reads. Hmm. The average medical paper is read by something like five people. Hmm. I've been speaking at conferences like the one I'd been at, where most of the audience knows the topic as well, if not better than me. Hmm. And yet I'd forgotten about you know, the most important person, the, the patient, the mum, the dad, the brother. Or I guess that translation of the science, uh, hmm. s- similar to to yourself yes so it's that translation which we'd forgotten about and that really started started the thought for the book cool um so um i think we we had a chat about reading the discovery the pub literally five minutes from where we're sat right now i was there at the sort of the genesis of the idea then it's on shelves as i walk past that's that's cool i i helped but you you were the second dad you're the conception (laughs) and um... i'm not sure i feel about that (laughs) Uh, well, you know, I, I wasn't a writer in school. I mm. genuinely couldn't spell my own name, mainly my middle names, which are long and French. <laughs> okay. um, I spelt gas with two S's for my A-level. Okay. You know, I genuinely w- w- wasn't a writer at all, but I always loved stories and I always loved science and, and making sense of those. So the book started with me doing a short blog piece, I guess, about 
a boy that made me choose to do intensive care, a young student called Chris, who went to Africa on a gap year and developed a severe infection. And sadly, Chris died a few days after his 18th birthday party in the intensive care unit. So that really changed me uh, and made me choose what I did. And so the book started with a human story. Mm. And the point was then to try to weave the fascinating science, which is which is great. Mm. But it's great because it's weaved around humanity, really, and, and mm. life. Yeah, I've often found that. As in, you know, people respond far more to stories about other people like you can throw all the facts you want at someone all the data all the reams and reams of evidence and that's fair enough but it won't have the same impact or the same sort of you know, persuasiveness of the guy in the pub tells you like hey, did he know this and then that becomes that's why we get a lot of you know, pseudoscience stuff and conspiracy theories it's other people say it's the, the case whereas you know, all, all the facts and figures in the world don't have that emotional impact. That's just how we function, as we as we know. So you're in Dublin. Um, so I, I have a sort of not a similar story, but I did a talk in uh, Derry, and afterwards I could win this pub, and sort of they rang the bell for last orders. I said, "Oh, I guess I'll go back to the hotel now." And they looked at me like I was stupid. Is well, what do you mean? Said, well, it's rang last orders. Said, That's not a thing. So we went to the local town and did this other pub, which was very much Irish cliche, almost personified. There was a guy, like there's a fiddle band on the stage and everything, and I thought, well, I better, better order a Guinness in case, you know. So I was at the bar, I said, can I get a Guinness, please? And the guy next to me, a little bit drunk, just said, you, where are you from? <laughs> I said, uh, Cardiff, Wales. He goes, Wales, that's all right. <laughs> like, oh, okay, so if I said... You passed. If I said English, that might have been a bit of a problem. Yep. But um, I think it was some like weird Celtic diplomatic immunity. But obviously you were in Ireland and things, and so how, you know, does, does your Welshness, uh, obviously you are... You've lived there all your life. Did you study here too? Yeah, I studied in Cardiff. Yeah, uh, d- did my A levels in a, in a local college. I went to mm. Bristol Uni for a bit, but um, did most things in Cardiff actually. Yeah. So, do you find there's um, a different approach to like the Welsh medical system, or again, I don't know what experience you have outside of it, but obviously we we have a certain level of devolution and uh, sort of cultural influence of these sort of things. So, how do you find working in the Welsh medical system, uh, if if that is even a thought you've ever had? Yeah, I suppose you could look at it in terms of undergraduate and study and then how the Welsh health system works. When I started medicine, it was still in those f- times, really, of a very stereotypical selection of, oh, you're in a Welsh rugby team, you hmm. play second row, therefore you'll do well at interviews. And there was okay. still that that conception, I guess, and I've never fully understood why, you know, why that makes you a good or a bad <laughs> doctor <laughs> and you know, Adam Kane's book does a brilliant chapter on this you know why is you know being tiddlywinks champion of, of the UK make you good at palliative care for example mm. so that you know that has changed uh, and although it, people still appreciate leadership roles and other things in medicine I think that has changed medicine in in Wales is different from elsewhere it's a devolved service and it's got its own struggles mm. Obviously, being a big industrial heartland, we still have the scars of the industrial past. Mm. And not only the physical scars in terms of lung health or oh, cardiovascular yeah, course, yeah. disease, but, you know, the mental scars as well, actually. Yeah, because I sort of mentioned that in my, one of my recent books, the psychological one, about I grew up in Mining Valley just as the mines were shut down and I lived in the pub. So, in hindsight, I saw a lot of the mental health fallout from, you know, an industry just completely have the heart ripped out of it and all like the local men the big miners have literally nothing to do and essentially no purpose and that's 
that does affect you so quite strongly. You know, again, the impacts are still being felt and seen now. So you are interested in the sort of the ethical and the, the moral side of what you do and how to apply that. I mean, we had a really interesting discussion about your position on whether or not it's right or expected or what it should happen. Should you go to a patient's funeral? So um, is, is that an ongoing thing in the medical field? Yeah, it's it's strange that detachment has advantages and disadvantages and in some of the hardcore science disciplines that perhaps intensive care is one of them you know we're passionate about numbers we're passionate about fancy machines and expensive drugs all those things are great but actually the difficult decisions every day that I do are not normally related to what drug to use what machine to use it's about things like should we do something rather than can we do things Mm. and when that time scale stretches out to death and beyond that's even more tough actually we need to be human as doctors and nurses and and physios but also we need to make those tricky decisions so you're right I I went to a patient's funeral probably about a year or so ago now which was the first patient's funeral I went to and it it felt amazing Uh, it also felt kind of uncomfortable to tell others that I'd done that. Well, of <laughs> course, yeah, that's, that's why it's, a, it's an issue, I guess. And then yeah. You were involved in, you know, the reason he, this funeral is happening is in part, well, thanks to you, that sounds awful, it sounds like you're, you're responsible for the whole thing, but you know, it didn't, I was involved in the, the sequence of events which led to this outcome. Yeah. And that's, yeah, that must be a tricky one, because like, it's not something I've ever, I, I have sort of peripheral experience, because I worked in the medical school for two years embalming the cadavers and working in the body donation anatomy theatre where the people like yourself would have practiced surgery. So I had to call up, you know, relatives and say things like, you know, your your recently deceased father or grandfather or uncle or something has uh, left their body to us, so we, we need to arrange that. Which is a strange thing to have to tell someone who's in the right to the peak grief period. Mm-hmm. So yeah, it's it's a really odd it's a really interesting one from a psychological perspective, which obviously is where I come from, but you said like your your medical colleagues don't feel don't all feel the same there's a strange divide actually nursing and allied healthcare professionals it's it happens more and more but i think in the medical side of things it's relatively unusual and i, I don't want to paint the picture as if i'm i'm going to you know every patient's <laughs> funeral there, there are you know, the, the person whose funeral i went to is a patient who's a very long term patient which is mm. quite unusual in intensive care yeah of course yeah. Uh, and so you know relationships were formed professionally and you know he was kind of a friend actually uh, by the end so I think that was one reason why and increasingly we hear about terms like burnout in medicine and stress workplace stress in medicine and I think switching off these human parts of us you know may contribute towards that and so rather than burn out uh, sometimes I think you need that the opposite which is kind of burning in Mm. Um, I've also gone back to visit patients in their own home after they've been critically unwell and that's quite odd for us to do as well normally intensive care ends when there's an empty bed and that either means a patient has lived and gone to the ward Mm. or died (coughs) (laughs) that's the end but that's not uh, not the end that's Mm. just the beginning so following up those patients further down the line for me is actually helpful and hopefully for them Mm. too Uh, but it is uncomfortable as well well, yeah, it would, it, it's mm. got so much, you know, your relationship is so complex and unusual and there's obviously a, quite a strong hierarchy there. I mean, this comes up in mental health, the you know, the medical model, in, in, you know, people are trying to get away from it because 
with some patients you can, but with mental health patients you shouldn't be shouldn't be a doctor patient relationship because you can't say to the patient, "You do this, do as you told, take the medication, see me in a month." Mental health just doesn't work that way. You need far more engagement and perhaps a more level playing field. But it must be equally as confusing in critical care because obviously, in a way, you're very uniquely intimate with these people because you've you know you've you've been responsible for their lives. Yeah, you know, hands have been you know literally inside their chests, uh, and you know you've been looking you know into the uh, you know into the depths of their lungs and so on. But but equally, it then shows you the lightness at the end of you know that dark you know we're in this beautiful uh writing shed at the minute and <laughs> l- last weekend actually was my birthday I, w- I drove past Larne and called into mm. Dylan Thomas's oh, yeah, house, which I'd, I'd never been to actually and there was a beautiful poem on the wall called poem on his birthday oh. there was a line in there which I'll remember for a long time now which says dark is a path light is a place and it was a pretty dark poem about his birthday, and he was getting closer to death every birthday was the, was the conception. But I, it's like that in critical care. The things we do and the things we go through are, are pretty dark. Um, but actually, the end result of those, hopefully, you know, is, is that place, place of light. And even in death, actually, you know, organ donation is something that we're involved heavily with now. And even in the saddest cases, you know, sometimes that can result in life for you know, three four five six others mm. so it, it's it's very much that journey which 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 draws me to critical care and i i find fascinating really that's amazing apologies to all listeners um uh, my neighbors t- today decided to saw their roof in half or something so there's that that going on in the background I'll, if you can hear that that's what that is you obviously were um sort of you, you're interested in this, this side of things and you know, keep in touch with patients and going to the funerals and stuff do you think that's maybe a, a Welsh trait? Because we are sort of very strongly community-orientated. There's a strong, you know, stick-with-family, matriarchal vibe of Welsh stuff. Is that something you think might have influenced that? Wow, yeah, that's not something I've thought about, actually. Mm. Um, I, I come from a pretty big family on my mum's mm. side. You know, they grew up in, again, the industrial heartland land of, of Potolba, around uh, where the industry was all based. Big family, loads of cousins, lots of arguments about sharing sweets out for mm. dessert and so on. Uh, and I suppose, yeah, it, it may be that. It's certainly extending the time scale of illness to where it matters, which mm. is you know often in the home and often with those family members. So, yeah, that, that may well be a component, actually. Cool. Have you ever encountered any sort of, I say because I have, not a sort of aggressive way, but sort of oh, eyebrow-raising way, like you do what you do, which is like mind-blowingly impressive, uh, but also you're Welsh. Has there ever been anyone said like, really? Because uh, like, that's the whole point of this, trying to dispel the myth that such things can't happen. You can't be Welsh and clever enough to do this sort of thing. Have you, has, your, has your being Welsh ever been an issue that's come up at all? Or Certainly meeting some some teachers from the past, that's, okay. that's happened. You know, Up until the end of primary school, my passions in life were playing in the mud, okay. uh, going to the park. The concept of being gifted or qualification you know that never entered into the vernacular really I just you know loved school I thought I was just the same as everyone else actually and I, I was of course um, and the, certainly the school I grew up in and, and went to primary and comprehensive school you know their passions were some of the stereotypical things in terms of sport and, and culture and everything else in fact many of the teachers in my comprehensive school especially in engineering and those mm. subjects were employed because they they played rugby for the local team. Mm. You know that was their 
predominant <laughs> qualification. Okay. Um, so I guess, yeah, that, that has surprised people uh, in the past. Mm. My accent's not the most Welsh accent no, it's, to it's, Welsh it's, people. It's, it's very, it, I, I can sort of hear it, but I can imagine yeah. someone wouldn't think it when they listen yeah. to it. I mean, yeah. I don't get that. Uh, it doesn't happen to me. But I do actually speak now. My family think I sound posh these days. Yeah. This is me posh, by the way. Um, I used to talk very, very, very valleys, marvellous. I can't believe that one. That, that was always... Then I came to Cardiff and got it smoothed off over like several years. And my wife is a very classically English accent. Um, so yeah, anyway, it morphs and changes over time. But I find uh, when my grandmother was alive, I'd call her occasionally. I'd say to my wife, I'm just going to call my granddad to check in, you know, and um, speak to her for 10 minutes on the phone. I got off the phone. She goes, oh, she goes, oh, she's marvellous. Oh, she's doing really well at the moment. And I just slip straight back into yeah. it. It's a really weird... It's a weird phenomenon. I mean, that's not just a Welsh thing. That's obviously a, just an accent and upbringing yep. thing. Yep. But I think we do have a rather sing-song accent, which is people tend to fall into quite quite easily. Yeah. So you um, work in the Cardiff Hospital? Yeah, yeah. work in University Hospital Wales uh, mm. in Cardiff. Big hospital. 1500 beds um, <laughs> a lot of beds yeah. a lot of people and yeah. they do you know they do most things they do some transplant work they do lots of trauma mm. brain surgery um, you know, there's a big mental health unit not based in that hospital but close by in Clandock so yeah big mm. busy uh, hospital you went to Australia are there any salient differences between their healthcare and our healthcare that you think we could uh, learn from yeah, so I've worked in a load of hospitals in and around Wales. Actually, through training, you go, you know, all sorts. I was in, I was in Bridgend, and I, I've, I've read that you're also touched by some of the problems in Bridgend at the time of uh, a spate of young people who suddenly mm, took their yes. own lives. And I was working in Bridgend Hospital during that, so oh, I saw boy. a very different side. I saw the end results, if, yeah, if you like, course, rather yeah. than uh, yeah. the tough place that got them there. Yeah, I've also worked in big hospitals in Australia, which, you know, they've got interesting problems there. It was in Western Australia where there's a huge amount of mineral wealth. Mm. Uh, so, you know, the highest earners in Western Australia are those who fly in and fly out to the mines and then come back to Perth where I was working for a, a jolly good time, shall we say. So <laughs> we see the results of that. Mm. And they've also struggled, of course, with some of the original population of, of Western mm. Australia uh, and the Indigenous Aboriginal population with massive health inequalities. Um, mm. So that, that was an interesting difference, actually. Yeah. It's interesting you said about um, uh, the sort of the almost un- not uniquely Welsh, but rather you know, associated with Welsh health problems, like like the, the, the lung issues from coal mines and stuff. Is that still a prevalent problem? or? Yeah, I think it's probably into the next generation of problems. So we don't see the classic people who work at the coal face mm. of the mines coming in with coal miners' lung or pneumoconiosis. Now, Wales was a world-leading research centre for that in Clandock Hospital. There's a guy there, Archie Cochrane, who's probably the forefather mm. of epidemiology. Cochrane, yeah. Cochrane, absolutely amazing. We sometimes don't celebrate those things enough. You know, That's where a lot of the knowledge of medical epidemiology and lung surgery, mm. uh, TB work, has come from. What we see now, I suppose the downstream effects of the industry go in, and we see illness is sometimes a disease of the poor sadly and we Mm. see those health inequalities generations down the line be it through drug and alcohol misuse uh, be it through 
lifestyle choices causing other problems, be it through violence or, or trauma. So I guess you can't link that directly to the mine, <laughs> but actually it's a result of probably Welsh history, I guess. Yeah, I mean, the mine shutting down was a massive blow to the economy here, and well, the economic deprivation does tend to lead to such outcomes. You know, it, uh, it's, it's so intertwined. That's something that people sort of perhaps overlook, or people like simple answers. And like there was a report a few years back, come and said, we should look at uh, poverty, it's all about mental health. Said, you can't separate those two things. Those yeah. are very, very strongly intertwined. Like, don't yeah. say, and it sounds cheaper. Say, Let's do mental health, not poverty, but you're not going to fix one without the other, yeah. and vice versa, I suppose. And, uh, and sadly, it feeds into each other. We know even when people survive critical illness, you know, somebody who's the sickest they could be with sepsis and infection, they get through it and it's all a, it's a big success for us. We're mm. you know, cheering when they get home and we, we feel a, a glow inside. Actually, that's the start of a tough time. Mm. Relationship breakdown after survival from critical illness is a massive issue mm. uh, for loads of reasons. Financial troubles is a massive issue. And when we know that critical illness adversely affects those with the least to lose in the first place it's no surprise that that is an ongoing struggle really and that's something we probably don't look at well enough in intensive care Mm. we get the person out the door to the house and then often that relationship finishes Uh, so we need to develop these follow-up services and and support services for that i guess you could say that is that is beyond your remit somewhat in that you know this is genuinely a problem but it's you're trained for the more pressing, urgent problems. But yeah, this, ideally there would be a system in place where somebody would keep an eye on that and track that. And that's, I think that all feeds into the general lack of infrastructure investment, not just a Welsh thing, but obviously a yeah. UK-wide and perhaps planet-wide thing. But it is still something which is you know, a constant problem. And it might be affecting Wales a bit more because of our remote regions and mm-hmm. lack of economic uh, clout at the moment. But, but also I think we probably need to be a bit more clever about the research we do when the endpoints we often use are not particularly patient centric mm. so endpoints such as survival after mm. cardiac arrest for example mm. that's a brilliant thing but actually what patients and families may care about is getting back to work or mm. having independence in survival so we have been trying to change our patient-centered outcomes away from binary things like you are alive <laughs> congratulations <laughs> to things like you can you know see your children you can mm. care for your children you can care for yourself yeah i would love, I'd worry if i saw that card in the hospital gift shop <laughs> you are alive congratulations that, that's a brilliant idea actually that would be a bestseller <laughs> it's very relevant i suppose but it's also a little bit tactless <laughs> so perhaps a little bit on the nose you're alive stop moaning like that's doesn't quite work that way does it don't go into gift cards, Dean. <laughs> no, <think>. okay, fine. <laughs> fine. I'll stick the podcast because it's going so well. You mentioned, like, uh, obviously, Wales has been responsible or maybe really helpful in epidemiology. Like, that's something that hasn't occurred to me before. Like, the the, the coal miners' lung, um, the research into that, is sort of, that would feed into the wider world of just general scientific understanding. Well, you know, the statistical basis for that is now the basis for all good medicine actually mm. and, and we, we celebrate things like the cholera tap being taken off in, in mm. Broad Street in London which, which which is amazing but yeah Archie Cochrane you know, nine miles away was in a uh, an ex-war hospital and developed some of the theories we now use in complex medical studies and not just that actually even things like Bayesian maths 
uh, you know, Thomas Bayes, although he wasn't Welsh himself, the person who brought him uh, to recognition and, and published a lot of his work was actually from Neath, in fact. Amazing. <laughs> um, he was a mathematician f- from Neath. And in fact, so I'm doing some research at the minute for a, a book about animal physiology and how animals' mm. bodies work. And part of that has been uh, using that as an excuse to go and travel and see lots of interesting animals. So of course. I'm going to the Glapus Islands in May, oh, which right. is tough to organise, expensive. Uh, I talked to my family long and hard about it and tried to get that time time away. And then I discovered a few weeks ago uh, that actually Alfred Russell Wallace, you know, the forefather mm. of evolution along with Darwin developed many of his theories in Brinkhoch, <laughs> in the farm at the top of my road. Oh my God. Uh, and yet I'm travelling to <laughs> Ecuador uh, to try and discover some of this. So, uh, again, I think some of these things need to be raised out of the consciousness, mm. really. I had no idea about the Cochrane thing. That is mind-blowing for me, mm. because I also mm. know Cochrane, the Cochrane institution and stuff, and just uh, it's a big part of the work I do, and it was just there the whole time, yeah. <laughs> just, just, just on the road. That yeah. was... That's quite something. That's, yeah. like, I've learned something new from every one of these so far. So to go back to like, the previous point you mentioned, the whole uh, being good at rugby helps you become a doctor thing. I mean, I think one argument I, I've heard people say is that anyone who applies for medicine, at least these days, is already a top-flight student. They have you know, the best possible marks to get, so you can't base it on just academic prowess. You have to use something else. If it's up to you, what, what, what qualities would you look for in like, an aspiring medic? It's so tough, and also... I think putting everybody in the same category as that is a really tough thing to do. Mm. You know, the characteristics you want in a trauma surgeon uh, versus the characteristics in uh, a palliative care physician perhaps are different. There are, of course, similarities, uh, but similarly in pathology versus surgery, optometry versus something else. So, you know, that is tough. I think the, the, the main message to say is that it's about humanity, Mm. Uh, and early in medical school it's all about remembering things it's your ability to remember and the later through life you go it's actually the important thing is probably f- forgetting things <laughs> okay. rather than remembering yeah, things yeah so be more more adaptable more yeah, flexible yeah. yeah you know if you went to medical school more than uh, 10 years ago six out of 10 things you were taught are wrong mm. so it's all That's about really- that continuous adaption learning and and dealing with with people, actually, that's actually a really good point because that's something I comes up in my work a lot. Because obviously, I try to report like the current findings in neuroscience, and the time I write a book, it was published. It was like that's been a good six, seven months at least. Half stuff I said is either you know, called into question, or you know, there is counter evidence now, or just flat out wrong. It's something I missed, or I don't you because know, like I'm doing this book about emotions right now, and like I've interviewed you for it. Your take on the emotional link between doctors and patients is incredibly useful for that sort of thing but I came at it thinking a lot of the science was settled so I sat down to write it to check the basics completely not I have turns out I have no idea what I'm talking about and I've already agreed to write this book now so oh, I had to completely <laughs> revamp it which is great you know it's, 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 become, it's much better for it but this ability or this willingness to say well I was wrong I'm going change my mind now mm. is something which I think people don't see scientists and doctors doing that no. much and I think that's an, it's either an unfair stereotype or something that needs to be addressed and it's not even it's not even admitting wrongness. It's mm. often admitting uncertainty. Actually, that, that's really scary, though, isn't it? Yeah. It's tough. You know, I think if "I love you" are the most three important words in in English, probably in medicine, the most important words are probably "I don't know." But saying those words to a patient with cancer or a family member, you know, will he survive? 
saying I don't know yeah. is, is tough to say. Yeah, and, and it's, it's, it's really tough to hear. Not what they want to hear at no, all, though, is it? No. And that's really important. So, but yeah, like, I can't see what sort of school experience will prepare you for that. That's. Well, you'd fail your exams if you, <laughs> yeah, you know, if you continuously answered, you know, uh, the box I don't know, you don't get any marks for that. <laughs> and yet, actually, in medicine, admitting that uncertainty is sometimes the start of a more important conversation. You know, it can spring you off into doing research. Uh, the reason I, I'm doing some research into sepsis and infection, I mentioned this young boy, Chris, who sadly died of sepsis. His parents during that Breaking Bad News conversation in that room, mm. uh, which I remember vividly, yes. you know, they asked three questions. They said, why him? Why didn't the antibiotics work? And what can we do in the future to help? And it was probably those three questions, which the answer to all of them is, I don't know, that spurred me to do some research and others mm. into that topic, actually. So I think there's power in those words. Mm. And actually, that probably spurs all of science, I yeah, think. Yeah, that's really... Obviously, you don't research stuff you know. At best, you uh, try to look at the stuff. People think they know that, and I don't think they do, so I'm going to check that. You know, replication and so on is really important. Yeah. So, yeah, but that's a really interesting perspective on that, which is really nice. Do you want to uh, mention your, your next book? Because I thought I was really quite intrigued by that, uh, just, the, just the idea behind it. Yeah, so I've had a... Um, my life has been a series of, of obsessions, really, over the last <laughs> few uh, years. And my latest obsession is the way that animals' bodies work. So mm. be it the way a giraffe breathes, the way a giraffe gets blood to its brain, how fish at the bottom of the Antarctic sea shelf survive in those cold temperatures under such extreme pressure. So that was an interest, and I, I looked into those those facts. And what occurred to me is actually many of the adaptions these animals use, we now use in medicine. Oh, okay. So the way a giraffe breathes, for example, with a really long windpipe or trachea, mm. is the same way as we now breathe for people with asthma on life support machines. Because okay. it's a problem of dead space. You know, They've got right. two metres that doesn't conduct... A gas exchange and they need to get over that <laughs> so they breathe massive tidal volumes massive amounts of uh, breath in and out and they breathe really slowly which is what we do for asthmatics to reduce dead space Amazing. so yeah the second book is hopefully going to be called how kissing a frog can save your life <laughs> and it yeah. takes through the human journeys of patients mm. and then shows how understanding animal physiology has helped us care for those patients really are you going to introduce a caveat in case of poison arrow frogs? Because I imagine that would be less helpful. Well, actually, we use the toxin from poison arrow frogs every day in intensive care. Uh, tetrodotoxin, or now the different drugs used for muscle paralysis. And if you've got coronavirus or mm. flu and we need to ventilate your lungs, we'll use a variant of that drug to keep you alive. So even in in death, uh, sometimes drugs can be helpful, actually. But yeah, don't kiss a poison arrow frog. <laughs> I feel like I walked into that one, I'll be honest. Yeah. <laughs> like, I've said that, I go, you know what, that's probably, yep, yeah. it turns out it's wrong. See, I don't know. <laughs> Tetrodotoxin, I thought that came from um, blowfish. Oh, no, you're right, actually. Yeah, that is blowfish. Yeah. They, they, back me. some vague. Yeah, you got me. <laughs> that's good knowledge. That's <laughs> well, that, we, we study that a lot in the neuroscience, of yeah, course. Yeah, of course, um, yeah. yeah. And also, with, I will say, I remember that specifically because because of an episode on The Simpsons oh, where yes. Homer consumes blowfish, but uh, the poison part, and they say your heart will explode 24 hours later. I'm pretty sure there's no toxin which can which can cause that to happen, but maybe you know better. No, um, we'll, we'll soon find out. <laughs> okay, that's uh, disconcerting. I hope you enjoyed your lunch. Oh yeah. God, all right, yeah. 
Okay, so you got to that back on the way. Um, is there an ETA for that one? Uh, there's a fair amount of research, and I want to go and meet the animals in their natural habitats and interview mm. a lot of the scientists who are involved in uh, that know, veterinary I, medicine. Sorry, I thought I was going to say I want to interview the animals. <laughs> oh, please do that. <laughs> yeah, do that, that as well. That would be outstanding. Like the gorilla in Not the Nine O'Clock News. <laughs> um, yeah. Yeah, Gerald, was it Gerald? I, I think so. Yeah. That sounds, I ring the bell. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So that sounds cool. Um, so you're still working as a, as a doctor, obviously. Yeah, so I work full-time still as an intensive care consultant uh, mm. in, in, in Cardiff, but I'm trying to do some more public engagement things around writing, uh, be mm. it in book form or, or things like this, this, this counts, podcast, yeah, cool. <laughs> uh, which you know is, is so important, I think, in medicine, actually. Mm. Do you think, um, I, in my experience, because I've only, I've only ever worked peripheral to medicine, as in or taught to people psychiatry things, and is this like sort of atypical for modern-day medics? Because yeah, I know in science there's a sort of still a strong reluctance to get involved with engagement. It's seen as like secondary or a distraction from the proper work. Is that the case in medicine, or is it like far more diverse? I think it's certainly something that's relatively risky to do. I guess exposing things like you know, like we've said about don't know going to patients' mm. funeral. <clears throat> you know, it can easily draw criticism. And I guess it'd be much easier just to work more clinical shifts, uh, you know, with a white coat on and mm. continue doing those things. Uh, but equally, I think you know, that things which are tough are sometimes the, the important things to do. I think with the rise of Twitter, social media, media blogging, podcasts, opening up these worlds, kind of sm- small doors to big worlds, I guess, uh, is becoming more commonplace. And I think this is probably... An extension of that. There's been an explosion in medical memoirs. Mm. Some amazing yeah. books. Uh, Adam Kay's hilarious, fantastic book. I help with uh, that. I don't uh, think I get enough credit for it. Yeah, well, <laughs> no. a, a, absolutely, and, and and others as well. Leah ha- mm. Leah Hazard's Hard Pushed, which is a, mm. all about midwifery. Uh, there's a colleague of mine, Efra Abbey, who's written a book about intensive care medicine as well, mm. uh, from the perspective of a doctor in training, which is another really powerful read so yeah. i think it's a good time for for that yeah it does really. seem to be a really expanding genre i think um when breath becomes air helped that a lot and that was a major big seller yeah. i haven't read it yet it's and I, i've heard it's brilliant i'm sure it is but i'm not one for sort of really sad stuff yeah. <laughs> i find it hard to i appreciate it i, I, I will never criticize it on those grounds but it's like i find it a tr- tricky to get to read through because i yeah. I think I, I read for escapism and pleasure, so to yeah, delve into someone's terminal life story is perhaps a bit more than I'm than yeah. I'm braced for. And I think it's not only the words; it's you know, it's the backstory behind the book. And mm. I won't spoil it for for listeners, but you know, it's a sad story behind the actual book as well. I guess my take is the book I wrote, which is critical, uh, science and stories from the brink of life. It's it's predominantly a science book. It's a non-fiction mm, book. It wasn't meant to be a memoir about about my life. You know, there is some memoir in there just mm. to illustrate that journey, but it's really not even about science or medicine. It's about the patients mm. in there, uh, and the patients in there are you know real, often with their real names with consent, <coughs> uh, and that's quite a, a different way to approach a medical book. But many of the patients only agreed to be featured. If it was real, okay, uh, which is a pretty unusual and powerful thing to do, really. Are you okay to talk about the uh, the real life Breaking Bad, which you told me about, which was just like mind boggling? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So there's one story in the book uh, about a patient I met in Australia who came in after one of the world's biggest 
meth lab explosions. It blew the top off their house, you know, like a blister coming off. There was debris strewn all over the front wall, uh, front lawn, and he had severe burns, a lung injury from that explosion as well. So we did the things we normally do, looked after the body and the skin and used antibiotics and life support machines. And that side of it was interesting but relatively straightforward. The tricky bit was that his his family didn't come in. I knew he was critically ill, may have died. And in fact, not only did his family not come in, but his dad, as it turned out, was sat in the car park with his engine running, deciding whether to come in and see his son or not. And the reason he didn't is because he was the police commissioner of Western Australia, (laughs) whose passion in life was reducing drug-related harm and deaths. Um, And it's an extraordinary story. Like I said, not only because of the science, Mm. and we go into the science of blast injury and so on, but because of that relationship. And the end of the story, it's been a tough journey for them all. Yeah, I bet. (laughs) Um, But the end of that story so far is is kind of going well. And we see that sharp side in intensive care. And I often say, you know, you are not your worst mistake. You know, we see people after their worst mistake. Um, But we've all done stupid things. Mm -hmm. I haven't caused an explosion in the meth lab <laughs> that you're aware of yet um, but you know we've texted while we drive we've made bad choices we've all done stupid things and it's only serendipity which often keeps us on the side of freedom and, and health and, and I think it's important to remember that in intensive care when you're seeing that person's mistake actually Nice. So that actually happens then in real life. That's a scenario which can occur. It's yeah. one of those moments like, what? That's that's. Don't cook meth, people. Well, that's, yeah. Yeah, that's probably a good rule of thumb anyway. I yeah. Do, do, do you have a lot of patient um, sort of not patient interaction, but patient family interaction? Is that is that part of your job? Yeah. So most of the time, when we meet families for the first time, it's normally to give them probably the worst news of their life. Yeah. And <laughs> you know, you've yeah. got a few minutes to build trust, build rapport, they want to know that you know, their loved one is in good hands uh, and things like you know, getting their loved one's name right, you know, that's probably, you know, the most important thing because that then just erodes that trust from minute one really. Mm. So I'm, I'm pretty anal about family conversations, you know, I like to check the room is okay, uh, there's no you know, tissues on the floor or, or silly mm. things like that, that there's no blood on your shoe or against things which yeah and speaking to families afterwards those are the things they remember you know they remember the doctor pronounced my wife's name wrong or or, Mm. uh, you know his shoelace was under silly things which are surrogates for for that trust actually they're going to be so emotionally stimulated i mean everything about that memory is going to be almost burned into their like the synapses so those details will matter, as they know. Like, also, it's, it's it could be you know, a form of deflection in that you don't want to face this news. You don't want you want someone to blame. You want someone to to point that and say like, yeah, but that was bad. But this is this is a bad thing too. So it's, it's something else to focus on. So like, if you have untied shoes or you, you say the wrong name, that's going to be that's going to carry a lot more consequence than it otherwise would in a you know, in a normal scenario. So if I so if I went to the GPs and they said, Mister brunette so that you know, yeah. roll my eyes a bit but I wouldn't yeah. be devastated but yeah. if I was like get that sort of news I would be furious yeah. <laughs> because that's just you know, that's added something to an already volatile situation and it's not the words they remember it's often how you make them feel that they remember mm. so it's not you know slipping up the word 
it's it's how you then make them feel and I guess medicine is odd like that it's said that it's the most scientific of the humanities or the most humane of the sciences mm. and it's that blend of you know hardcore science and that interaction really which I love but you know the same as as neuroscience same as, as mental health care and palliative care I think that's the thing which attracted me to it in the first place mm. you know I, I love the science I wanted to be Fox Mulder from the X-Files in school. Um, but actually, I, I love that other side too. Did you, um, did you have any training with that sort of how to interact with patients? I'm assuming you must, but then it's kind of hard to practice. There's no, you know, you can't just read a book and have that sort of skill. Things things change. So there was some training through medical school, but like learning to drive a car or all those other things, the real training starts you know, the day you start the engine yourself for the first time you know, the, after you're qualified now we do use actors more and more in medical education mm. we use a lot of simulation in medical education but like, like most things there's never as good a surrogate as as doing it really yeah it's, it's definitely one of those on the job things you have yeah. to <clears throat> i can imagine a scenario where someone gets the job but isn't that good at that part and that's going to be tricky yeah, I think it, it perhaps is a trainable skill to, to many extents. You know, there are strategies to do things. I've got a routine I go through every time. I put a patient sticker on my left hand. I write the nurse's name on that patient sticker. So I never forget the patient's name. <laughs> and I never forget the nurse who's looking after that patient's name. Uh, you know, I then inspect the room. I've got a series of things I go through, not in a mechanical way, mm. but having checklists like that almost give your brain freedom to then do the important things mm, without course, worrying yeah, about yeah. the other yeah. important things. Yeah, the, 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 the headspace isn't occupied by the, not the mundanities, but the sort of the basics. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So that's pretty cool. Yeah. Cool, yeah, like, so... I feel like I could be a intensive care doctor now. <laughs> well, well, let's let's do it. Let's this brief uh, conversation we've yeah. had. <laughs> that's amazing. Okay, so anything else you um, wanted to bring up? Or uh, no, I think that's it. Just yeah. thank you for opening up the world of mental health and neuroscience. Of course, yeah. uh, thank you for your wonderful daughter. That, uh, your wonderful daughter. Your wonderful <laughs> book that my daughter your has daughter, consumed yeah, yeah. and uh, now tells me when I'm checking my phone that I'm not actually doing work. <laughs> tells me she needs more sleep because yeah. she's growing up and all those things. That's technically true, though. Are factually I stand true. By that, yeah. yeah, that's the worst bit, really. Yeah. <laughs> Don't give a teenager facts. Yeah. They, they will use them with, with a forethought and malice. That's a, a lesson I've heard here. So, um, Matthew Morgan, thank you for coming and sitting and uh, having this chat. It's been really, really enjoyable and very informative. Thank you, Dean. Thanks, so, that was Matt Morgan, one of those uh, modern-day superheroes that uh, we should perhaps be celebrating a lot more yes it's a bit of a different different world these days you can probably tell from the background noise here again which is consists largely of uh, my children and neighbor's children playing in the gardens because you know, they can't do a lot else right now and the, the weather's good at least although it does make you think what would have happened if this had all kicked off like a month or six weeks ago when wales has been constantly flooded so people have been told to both leave their homes and stay indoors at all costs which would have been Tricky, rather than uh, you know developing gills or just drowning, that would have been hard one to resolve. So um, as, I, as I like to do it, so talk over what happened in that episode. Uh, obviously, I was joking when I said I like to claim credit for Adam Kay's book. He's a he's a friend. I like to think, 
And he did once mention that he wasn't going to put much technical explanations for illnesses and medical procedures in his incredibly successful best-selling book, This Is Going to Hurt. But after reading my first book, The Idiot Brain, you realise that you could keep details and still keep things engaging. So that was nice. I honestly don't think it means I should get a cut of the royalties, though, despite the many times I've said that uh, in private conversations. As it happens, uh, the Cosmic Shambles Network that hosts this podcast is currently producing the Stay at Home Festival, where scientists and comedians and other interesting types from all over the world broadcast a live show online on weekday mornings at 10am uh, with some of the evenings planned too. And I'm actually scheduled to be on the show with Adam Kay on March the 31st, so check that out. Maybe he'll shout to me for saying this sort of thing. Interesting discoveries I mentioned in this podcast. Uh, it's weird to think that there are people on intensive care wards right now on respirators fighting off coronavirus who owe their continued existence and their very lives to the evolution of giraffes. Uh, it shows how all science is kind of interconnected in a way, but it's quite cool when you think about it. These things are quite grim otherwise, but you try to find the light where you can. Uh, a few things Matt mentioned, which might need clarifying. Uh, Matt discussed how Alfred Wallace developed his theories just down the road from him. For those who don't know, Alfred Wallace is a contemporary of Darwin's, Charles Darwin's. He was a fellow naturalist, uh, born in Wales to a Scottish father. He developed the theory of natural selection independently of Darwin, although they both came up with it individually. And it was Wallace's theories that uh, essentially spurred Darwin on to propose the theory of evolution and write the origin of the species. Wallace wrote an, an essay and Charles Darwin added to it and put both their names on it. And that was like the first published work which outlined the theory of natural selection. And many historians consider it a distortion of history that Darwin gets sole credit for the theory of evolution when Alfred Wallace was just as important at the time and was a huge influence on Darwin, 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 on Darwin and his works. Uh, I'm not suggesting that it stems from his Welsh origins, by the way, this uh, being overlooked by history, although who knows? But I will concede that Galapagos Islands were probably more interesting and exotic to the society of the 1800s as opposed to a farm in Neath. Just one of those things, I guess. Another thing Matt mentioned was uh, John Snow and the cholera chap. Uh, John Snow was a London-based physician and leader in the development of medical hygiene practices, which is very relevant right now, obviously. John Snow worked in the mid-1800s, again, uh, before germ theory, when people believed sickness was spread via miasma, bad air, toxic pollution, and things like that. John Snow didn't believe this, uh, didn't have an alternative theory, but by investigating the cases of a vicious cholera outbreak in London, again, alarmingly topical, uh, he deduced that the source of the cholera was the public water pump in Broad Street, Soho. So he arranged to have the pump handle removed, uh, so people had to use different pumps, and lo, the outbreak ended. And thus, modern epidemiology was born, the practice where diseases and their occurrences in populations are studied in order to work out their origins, distribution, and other properties. Again, very, very relevant right now. Archie Cochrane, Matt and I discussed him at length, uh, another one regarded as the father of modern epidemiology and evidence-based medicine itself. He helped develop and championed the randomised control trial, which is a type of clinical study where you take your subjects and randomly put them into two or more groups and give one of them the thing you're studying, like a new drug, and give another group, the control group, a placebo or something ineffective. So everyone experiences the same thing, but that only one group gets the thing you're wanting to study. Uh, they're otherwise treated exactly the same. It removes sources of bias and makes it clearer that it's the drug or whatever that's having the effect because if it was something else, some other variable, then the control group would be showing the same results too. So you can't just reinterpret the results as you want, which is a big problem for many trials as researchers are only human. This approach effectively revolutionised medicine and research and has undeniably saved many millions of lives. Archie Cochrane is credited with making this happen and he did it in Wales studying the miners of Rhonda and the coal-dust-induced lung diseases that they're now widely known for. 
this wasn't something I knew about. And I would say it really should have been. This is almost my area. Crockin himself wasn't Welsh. He was Scottish, which is fine, obviously. But to know that Welsh miners, thanks to the ailments they suffered from the nature of the work, were instrumental in something that changed medicine and research and saved millions worldwide. Can't stress that enough. And continue to do so. Especially now, it seems like that should be something worth highlighting. More often than is currently done. I think it's because the common perception of the coal mining industry in Wales is largely a melancholy one overall. Matt himself highlighted both the physical and mental health problems that linger to this day from both the mining industry itself and its subsequent decimation. And it took extensive legal challenges to get the UK government to even acknowledge the harm done by what was asked of the coal miners of Wales and elsewhere, like my grandfather's, who numbered among them. Not denying any of that as true and valid, but to know that what the miners went through did, in the end, make life considerably better for our entire civilization that that is arguably, I'd say, a very respectable silver lining in the otherwise dusty black cloud which still lingers over much of Wales. Just something to consider, I guess. And finally, before recording this, I asked Matt if he had anything in particular he'd like to emphasise or get out there regarding the current coronavirus situation, and he sent me a message because he's kind of busy right now and couldn't come back to do it himself. He said, and I quote, My plea to the public is to be kind, wash their hands, and listen to the science of experts. Science is not perfect, but it's the best thing we have. Can't really argue with any of that. Matt Morgan's book, Critical Science Stories from the Brink of Human Life, is available now from all good bookshops. This was an episode of Smart Welsh People, intro and outro music by John Mouse, all associated artwork by Miriam Gibbs of The Dragon's Kutch. As ever, I'm Dr Dean Manette. To find out more about me, my books and other output, go to deanmanette.com. This podcast is part of the Cosmic Shambles Network. For more podcasts, blogs, documentaries and the ongoing Stay at Home Festival to support artists who've lost extensive work due to the coronavirus shutdown, visit cosmicshambles.com. Cosmic Shambles Network is supported by your pledges on Patreon. You can support this podcast and everything we do at Cosmic Shambles for as little as $1 a month and get some great rewards for doing so. Pledge now at patreon.com forward slash bookshambles. Thank you for listening. Diolch of Aur.